fellow Who Gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the new podcast that takes you through the world of the Target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. Welcome to Episode 9, our second show of 2022. Here we're approaching the end of the Target's first year of original novelizations, the 1974 books, and we're in the final month still of Target's double releases, starting with the November 1974 release. It'll be just a book a month, and it'll stay there through 1991 or so, and not even every single month. But here in October 74, we're enjoying the bookend to Barry Letts's 166-page Doctor Who and the Demons, the subject of last week's show. And we're moving on to the comparatively Lilliputian 133-page Doctor Who and the Sea Devils. But first, a couple of news items of interest, and not very pleasant ones. I want to take a moment to reflect first on the deaths of Igor and Grichka Bogdanov, who both died within the past week. Their Doctor Who connection, however tenuous, is that they hosted a French TV show, the English title of which would be Time X, which aired various English-language sci-fi programs for a French audience, including Doctor Who. A number of Target novelizations were released, translated into French, on pretty awesome cover art. And the covers included not just the Doctor Who um, logo, which I believe was unique to the French edition and the cover art, but also likenesses of the Bogdanov twins themselves um, as they appeared on TV in the late 70s and throughout the 1980s. This was the pre-plastic surgery, or depending on who you ask, the pre-Botox injection incarnation of the Bogdanov twins. The twins who per media reports were both unvaccinated, died of COVID within a week of one another, one at the end of December and one just into the new year. For science-minded brothers who introduced Doctor Who to France, their sad final act appears to have had them playing the role of Dr. Lawrence in episode six of the Silurians, which we discussed here in episode five. I hope the Bogdanov brothers rest well, if not necessarily in peace. The other story, and this is a little more comedy than tragedy, is the 2022 Buffy the Vampire Slayer wall calendar. Uh, This made a big splash on social media for all the wrong reasons, but if you were fortunate enough to have purchased the Buffy wall calendar, the January uh, photograph is uh, a gorgeous picture of the entire Buffy crew with Buffy in the middle. And then moving inward from the flanks, you have uh, Spike, Anya, Giles, Xander, Willow, and the Matt Smith Doctor in a bow tie, because bow ties are cool. Looming behind them is Azal the Demon, yes, from the 1971 Doctor Who episode of the same name, The Demons, which we discussed last week. Uh, Cy Hart and myself on episode 8, Doctor Who and the Demons. This is a cautionary tale in what happens when a once popular uh, television franchise uh, farms out responsibility for the calendar to a pretty shoddy contractor who, number one, isn't aware of which characters belong to the show, and number two, which just goes to the internet and steals somebody else's uh, handmade art without attribution and tries to pass it off as a calendar. Um, This is a cautionary tale, and uh, if you have that calendar, uh, you saw that it's quite a big splash on social media. But to the best of my knowledge, Matt Smith would only have been uh, barely a teenager when Buffy the TV show started to air, and Azala Demon never appeared in the Buffy universe, although, come to think of it, that would have been a pretty interesting fanfic crossover. Getting back to the world of Doctor Who, we're just a week past 
Eve of the Daleks and that phenomenal Next Time trailer. For a little more of a discussion of Eve of the Daleks, I was lucky enough to co-host an episode on the Trap One podcast about that, which released a couple of days ago as I released this episode. I was joined once again by Cy, right after he and I recorded the episode on Doctor Who and the Demons, also my good friend Jan and Daniel Knight, both of whom will hopefully be guests on this podcast very, very soon. Uh, Eve of the Daleks was a very fine episode, but the most exciting part for me was the trailer, which uh, teases the very next episode called Legend of the Sea Devils. And what a legend they were, uh, both as they appear in that trailer and as they appear in the book that, purely by coincidence, we're scheduled to talk about this week, Malcolm Hulk's Doctor Who and the Sea Devils. Let's get to it. Doctor Who and the Sea Devils, written by Malcolm Hulk, televised as the Sea Devils, teleplay by Malcolm Hulk, televised in February through April 1972, published in October 1974. Back cover blurb. Whilst visiting the Master, who has been exiled to a luxurious castle prison on a small island, Doctor Who and Joe Grant learn that a number of ships have vanished in the area. Whilst investigating these mysterious disappearances, Joe and the Doctor are attacked by a sea devil, one of a submarine colony distantly related to the Silurians. Soon they discover that the sea devils plan to conquer the Earth and enslave humanity, aided and abetted by the Master. What can Doctor Who do to stop them? And I gotta say, gotta love a back cover blurb that uses the word whilst twice. They don't make them like that anymore. With the release of Doctor Who and the Sea Devils, Malcolm Hulk becomes the undisputed king of the Doctor Who novelization. With his third book, and that's just in 1974 alone, he surpasses both David Whittaker, who had two in the 1960s, and Terence Dix, two in 1974, as the most prolific novelization author of all time. For now. Dix will catch up with Hulk, courtesy of the following month's release of Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowmen, and will overtake him for good when Doctor Who and the Giant Robot hits the shelves in early 1975. And after that, well, nobody's ever catching up with Terrence again. But Sea Devils is a very fitting jewel in the crown for Hulk's brief reign as king of the novelization. In an alternate universe, the book would be 450 pages long and be rightly held as a genre classic. Instead, Hulk is limited to only 133 pages of text, and he uses just about a third of that in adapting episode one of the TV serial. The first three chapters of the book are just about my favorite chapters in the whole Target run, rivaled only by the first few chapters of Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, which similarly lavished a disproportionate page count on the first episode of a six-part serial. What's interesting to me about Hulk's adaptation of the episode one material of The Sea Devils is how much of the best writing has nothing to do with the TV serial itself. The Sea Devils is a story that recently joined my top tier of favorites during my year 2021 Doctor Who pilgrimage. It's a condensed version of the plot of Doctor Who and the Silurians, but with the Master worked in and several members of the Royal Navy subbed in for unit. There's a lot of location footage, and the Navy's cooperation gave parts of it a big action-adventure blockbuster feel. In print, Hulk essentially removes the actual Sea Devils from the plot of the book that bears their name. 
What he replaces them with instead is everything but Sea Devils, and a whole bunch of new minor characters who bear little resemblance to their TV counterparts. And all that stuff is gold. Chapter 1 is essentially a prologue, told from the point of view of a doomed low-level ship's officer named Mason, who watches the Sea Devils wreck his boat and then take his life. We saw a ship destroyed by the Sea Devils in the opening seconds of the TV serial, but in this prologue we learn more about the ship's crew and what happened before the distress call went out. Mason is quite a progressive character while he's on the page. His best friend on the ship is called the Jamaican, a sailor who's actually from Trinidad, but the other sailors are so Anglo-Saxon normative that they can't be bothered to care which island he's really from. Doctor Who wasn't doing interracial friendships at this point in its history. In fact, the 1970s were about as whitewashed as the show ever got. So for Hulk to have added the scene to the book is a bit radical for its day. Especially considering that in the TV episode 1, there was no Mason. There was no Jamaican. Hulk effortlessly brings these two most minor characters to life in just a few sentences. And then kills them off by Sea Devil because if you appear in the prologue of a Target novelization... Good luck to you, you're probably not making it out the other end. Chapter 2, Visitors for the Master, is essentially plotless. It is instead a short story, the comedy of manners. It follows the Doctor and Joe as they visit the Master, who was last seen on TV and in the books, getting arrested at the end of The Demons, which came out the same month in novelization format, and he's being held in a special island prison as the only prisoner the locale of which seems especially relevant because I wrote the blog post on which this part of the episode is based just a few days after the airing of the season 4 finale of Sherlock, the Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat series. On TV, the island was merely set-dressing, but the novelization proves that Hulk probably planned to write a whole 900-page novel about the place, a surprisingly bustling haven for retired sailors, with a secret naval base on one side, a top-security prison on the other, and ancient ruins everywhere. Chapter 2 is populated with several islanders who believe that they're the protagonists of the story, and that the Doctor is just a wacky buffoon making a one-day cameo in their lives. And boy, does the Doctor look nuts from their point of view. An island boatman named Robbins has ferried the Doctor and Joe over from the mainland. Hulk sketches Robbins as an insolent older man, who believes that living on a small island leads him to understand the business of the whole world. Robbins rails against taxes and the government, and probably wants to make Britain great again, if you remember the novelization of the Silurians back in episode 5. Hulk then acknowledges that the man may have a point, and sketches him with honest sympathy. Robbins has no time for the Doctor and Joe's liberal views about crime and punishment, and he spends most of his brief appearances in Chapter 2 grumbling. I loved reading about this guy, and he's not even real. Robbins had a smaller and more kindly role on TV, smiling ruefully as the Doctor and Joe separately bribe him for use of his boat and motorbike. In the book, the Doctor and Joe just steal both vehicles. And there was no grumbling about the taxman. Meanwhile, back in the book, the Doctor is busy ignoring Robbins by baffling Joe with small talk. When do we get there? As the porcupine said to the turtle, shouted the Doctor, when we get there. It sounded like a quote from Alice in Wonderland, but Joe suspected the Doctor had just made it up. And, as far as Google tells us, the Doctor and Hulk did indeed make that quote up. As the Doctor and Joe take a leisurely walk from the island's quayside to the prison, the Doctor attempts to unravel the not-yet-revealed plot by reading an ancient poem inscribed on a mossy old stone marker. 
The poem evidently recounts an as-yet-untold adventure, when the sea devils must have invaded this island back in the 19th century. For you who tread this land, beware the justice hand, little boats like men in days of yore. They come by stealth at night, they come in broad daylight, little boats like men, beware the shore. And as an aside, if we don't get that poem in Legend of the Sea Devils in spring 2022, I'm going to feel cheated. The doctor also works in a brief lecture about coastal erosion, as well as a personal anecdote about Henry VIII, who he hasn't even met, strolling the ramparts of the now-submerged Sandown Castle. When asked by Joe why all of these verbal meanderings matter, the doctor responds with one of the great life credos. Physical exercise without mental exercise is a bore. Once they arrive at the prison, the doctor instantly clashes with the master's prison guards. Another of the great philosophers of life is one prison officer, Crawley. Crawley is clearly bored with his job and hides behind a great show of officious rule-following. When Joe reveals that the doctor is the one who captured Crawley's prisoner in the first place, Crawley has no reason to believe it, and sarcastically blurts back that he is the Lord Mayor of London. Later, when the third doctor goes all pertwee and begins to mock the prison's strict adherence to procedure, Crawley delivers a get-off-my-lawn warning. The way I look at it, the world's divided into three groups of people. Those who have been in prison, those who are in prison, and those who will be going to prison. As a former criminal defense attorney, I have used this quote, but I always attribute it to Ralph, the deputy sheriff whom I once knew in Lucas County, Ohio. I typically don't admit to quoting Malcolm Hulk at my day job. Of course, there is no Officer Crawley on TV. It takes pages and pages in the book for the Doctor and Joe to even reach the Chateau prison, but only about a minute on television. So none of the above advances the plot of the Sea Devils, but it makes Chapter 2 of the novelization one of the most quotable stretches of any Target book, and taken by itself, removing the Sea Devils and all the naval stuff, and indeed the plot, it's quite literary. This chapter takes up a full fifth of the book, and it's just a shame that it didn't take up a fifth of the TV story as well. In the book, the Master's reunion with the Doctor and Joe is a bit more emotionally fraught. Hulk describes at length the Master's trial and lifelong imprisonment, and the Doctor's own surprising role in trying to get the courts to extend the Master some mercy. Hulk writes, In his plea, the Doctor talked of the Master's better qualities, his intelligence, and his occasional wit and good humor. Joe well remembered the Doctor's final words to the judges. My lords, I beg you to spare the prisoner's life, for by so doing you will acknowledge that there is always the possibility of redemption, and that is an important principle for us all. If we do not believe that anyone, even the worst criminal, can be saved from wickedness, then in what can we ever believe? The Master also affects a tear at Joe Grant's kindness in visiting, describing the two of them as victor and vanquished. This is after he tried to kill her in the other novelization released the same month. He gives her a religious blessing on her way out the door. Of course, in the book, he's also not seen whistling along to clangers. That scene was added late in production, as the episode was underrunning. So that denies the book the label. Absolutely perfect. But much improved from TV is the Doctor's quick deduction that the Master's up to no good in prison. The Doctor knows Her Majesty's prison regulations better than Governor Trenchard, it turns out. And when Trenchard sends in a security guard to exchange the Master's book to demonstrate to the doctor that the prison guards are hypnotism-proof, the doctor realizes that he's being set up. In Hulk's hands, the doctor's mind never stops spinning. 
physical exercise without mental exercise is a bore indeed. The key mystery to episode one was the rash of ships sinking just offshore to the island. We know from chapter one that this is the work of the Sea Devils. The Master already knows that the Sea Devils are doing this. But he's convinced the patriotic Governor Trenchard that it's the work of foreign agents out to weaken Great Britain. The Doctor is unaware of the ships having been sunk at all, but is clued in by a careless comment by Trenchard and dives into the investigation after leaving the Master's prison. He visits the island's secret naval base and then takes Joe out to a semi-deserted oil rig, which he quickly realizes is at the center point of a triangle visible on a map when you connect the locations of the three sunken ships. This is all faithful from TV to book, except, of course, for production reasons, the planned oil rig shoot was turned into a sea fort on TV. But in the book, the Doctor also uses the sunken ships as an excuse to remind Joe of the story of the Mary Celeste, a historical incident that Doctor Who will have occasion to revisit many times over the years, even after having already landed on that ship in the chase in 1965. The Mary Celeste wasn't mentioned in the Sea Devils on TV. This is just one more instance of Hulk adding as much scientific and historical context as he can into this one slim book. But that's talking about the plot of the Sea Devils again, and honestly, that plot is the least important thing about the novelization. Hulk's ear for authentic character voices, factoids, and invented literary quotes and observational humor are what win the day in the first three chapters of Doctor Who and the Sea Devils. After the break, the sad life and death of Governor Trenchard, and more of Mac Hulk's notes on island living. Oh yes, I've got everything I want. Except, of course, my freedom. You can consider yourself lucky. Quite a few people were in favor of having you executed. My dear doctor, don't think I'm not grateful. I've had a chance to think about things while I've been in here. Have you now? I wish that something like this had happened a long time ago. Surely you don't like being locked up? No, but... It's given me a chance to reconsider my life. Am I to take it that you're a changed man? Is that so very incredible? After all, I do have a great deal of which to repent. You're telling us. In that case, perhaps you'd like to tell me the whereabouts of your TARDIS. <laughs> so that you could use this in order to escape from this planet, Doctor? No, so that I can make absolutely certain that you can't. No, I'm sorry. That is too much to ask. Ask a silly question. Come on, Joe. I think we'd better be going. Sir, is there anything that I can do for you at all? There is one thing. Please come in now and then to have a chat. Oh, Trenchard's a very nice man, but uh, his conversation is somewhat limited. Goodbye. Goodbye, Miss Grant. Goodbye, Doctor. I sincerely hope we meet again very soon. Before the break, we talked about the superlative, the first three chapters, of Doctor Who and the Sea Devils. As great as the chapters were, though, they had very little to do with the actual TV serial itself. Moving on to the middle portions of the book, which cover roughly episodes two through four of the TV material, we move a little closer to the plot of the story. But what we're seeing here are the remnants of the original script and Hulk's intentions for the story, rather than what the production team ended up giving us. During the production, the realities and logistics of arranging a complicated location shoot, as well as, the, as well as the cooperation of the Royal Navy, gave us a compromise between extensive use of naval hardware and personnel and the abandonment 
There were even more action scenes that Michael Bryan ran out of time or good weather to stage. But Hulk's book is a story about people. There's a lot of authentic naval detail. Hulk was a veteran, but not a whole lot of pages dedicated to describing pitched battles. This is a book instead about human characters, first and foremost. And politics, too. In Hulk's original telling, mankind's accidental revival of the Sea Devils had a topical spin. The Sea Devils were awakened by drilling for English Channel oil. Hulk's notion of channel drilling was sparked by the recent discovery of North Sea oil, which Hulk in the novelization dates three years into the future, to 1977. But the production team couldn't secure permission to film on an oil rig, which would have been required for episodes one and two, so they turned the corresponding location into a sea fort. On TV, the two sea fort characters in episode one talk about repairing the fort's undersea foundations, and that, we're supposed to assume, is what revived this colony of sea devils not drilling for oil, as in the book. Hulk's take proves more interesting. One of those two C4 characters, and the only one retained for the novelization, is played by Declan Mulholland, i.e. the original Jabba the Hutt. On TV, Mulholland sports the same Irish brogue that you recall from the deleted episode 4 scenes, where his pleasing, lilting tones refer to Harrison Ford as Hand Me Boy. Hulk also restores characters who didn't make it into the TV production, and continues to give them the perspective of ordinary folk who believe that they're the main character of the story. For example, the island's lone police constable tries to solve a rather perfidious crime. And he arrived by boat, said P.C. Watkins, writes Hulk. It was the first time he'd ever been inside the naval base, and he intended to make the most of it. For 15 years, he had been the only policeman on the island where he knew everyone and everybody's business, and it rankled him that this naval base was virtually out of bounds to him. Today, however, he had a perfect right to be here. He was investigating what, by the values of the island and its tiny population, was big-time crime. Someone had stolen Thomas Robbins' boat. But the biggest star by far of the middle portion of the book is Governor Trenchard. Trenchard is this story's dupe. Ostensibly, the warden of the special prison, in which the master is the only inmate, Trenchard's already fallen under the master's persuasion before the book opens. Not a victim of hypnosis, he's rather an orphan of the collapsed British Empire, a former colonial governor whose colony proclaimed independence as soon as he arrived. He falls prey to the master's psychological warfare and begins helping the master, ostensibly in the name of restoring Britain's good fortunes. What he's really doing, unbeknownst to him, is enabling the Master to awaken the Sea Devils so that they can reclaim Earth and eliminate mankind. After the next break, by the way, we'll find out just how well the Master succeeds in this aim. A long scene deleted from an overrunning Episode 2 on TV is preserved in the book, albeit relocated to the Episode 1 material, and shows us how the Master comes to persuade Governor Trenchard that the naval base must be raided and sonar stores stolen in the first place. That's an example of the persuasive tactics that the Master used, rather than hypnotism, to win Trenchard over to his side, something that was never quite made clear on TV. On TV, in Episode 2, Trenchard smuggles the Master onto the naval base in order to steal sonar equipment. The two men leave before the alarm is sounded. More interestingly, in the book, Trenchard, with the Master hidden in the backseat of his vehicle, leaves the naval base after the alarm is rung, because the chief on duty at the main gate can't believe that there's actually a real emergency on, and decides to just wave Trenchard through. The DVD text commentary tells us that, in the original script, 
Treasure was described as a middle-aged man dressed in conventional country gentleman clothes, tweed suit, old-school tie, as he did with his scripted descriptions of Caldwell and Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, Hulk lifts this scripted description verbatim for the novelization. But, apart from his country gentleman mien, Trenchard has major personality deficits, which you know Hulk is not going to shy away from detailing. When the Doctor and Joe first arrive in Trenchard's office, Trenchard pointedly ignores them, leading Hulk to remark, Joe was reminded of a rather stupid headmistress she had once known, who would always use this technique when girls went in to see her. It was a trick to make visitors feel unsure of themselves. I enjoy how Hulk adds his own life experiences, and typically caustic observational humor, to make the story flow along. In my law practice days, I appeared before several judges who did this type of thing. Going back even further in time to the late 1980s, I had a high school principal who behaved the exact same way. Almost everything you need to know about Trenchard is found in that observation of Joe's. But within chapters 4 through 9, Hulk supplies several scenes from Trenchard's POV, even though he's already established Trenchard as less than the cream of the British Empire. And all of these scenes are treats. At first, we hear Trenchard in his own voice justify his perfidy in collaborating with the Master, which he couches in terms of self-delusional modesty. Hulk writes, The Master's plan was that he and Trenchard would work together to get to the root of the problem. Then Trenchard would truly qualify for the recognition he so richly deserved, while the Master would remain quietly in the background. Already, Trenchard could see himself receiving a knighthood for his services to England in detecting and exposing its enemies. We also see Trenchard's officious posturing as he attempts to hide the truth from the Doctor and Joe, along with his fear of being double-crossed by the Master, the eternal lament of the dupe. He knew, or hoped he knew, says Hulk, that what he was doing was right. He was trying to save England from her enemies. The difficult thing about it, though, was that in order to do the right thing, he had to do so many wrong things. Or, as Hulk writes, all his time in the army had taught him that the simplest solution to any problem was to carry out an order given by someone else. The reason all of this trenchant business resonates with me is that Hulk is portraying him three different ways at once, as a sympathetic foil, as a satiric indictment of a particular sort of late colonial-era British army officer, and as a buffoon. Trenchard's repeated laments about his pact with the master getting out of hand generate definite pathos for the poor guy. Trenchard feels hurt after the master yells at him, and it's hard not to feel the hurt right along with him. It was getting all too complicated, says Hulk. He very much wished he was back on the northwest frontier with a kindly commanding officer who told him exactly what to do and what to think at any time of day or night. Here, he had to make so many decisions. Trenchard's inevitable exit from the story occurs in a chapter wickedly titled Visitors for Governor Trenchard. Dupes don't tend to last long in Doctor Who episodes, but you can read through the entire novelization canon and not find any other dupe, and there are many, many other dupes in Doctor Who stories, who's put as much at center stage as Trenchard is put by Hulk. This makes Trenchard's fate kind of heartbreaking. Too late. Trenchard realizes that the Master and Sea Devils are allies, and that the Master wasn't using him to destroy the Sea Devils after all. Rather, the Master used Trenchard to facilitate a jailbreak, and the second the Sea Devils arrive, the Master leaves Trenchard to his fate. When on TV, Roger Delgado tells him that his troubles will soon be over. You know that's about the kindest death sentence that the Master can deliver, but it's a death sentence nonetheless. As on TV, 
Trenchard makes a last-minute phone call to his government superiors to warn them that his prison is being invaded by sea frogs. That call didn't save him on TV, and Hulk being Hulk, it fails to save him even more egregiously in the book. He's asked here, by a snarky receptionist who's never heard of him, could you write to us about it? On TV, Trenchard dies off-screen after forming a vain one-man firing line against the invading sea devils. This is a noble exit, and the story appropriately pauses for a moment so the Doctor and Captain Hart can pay him the briefest of tributes. That's a nice moment. But, yeah, in the books, Hulk doesn't really do nice. Rather, he aims one last posthumous kick at Trenchard's corpse. Trenchard here recalls an ancestor, a major who bravely perished in the Indian Mutiny, taking several invaders along with him. Now, of course, you could unpack that uh, memory. Uh, Certainly, I don't think there's any real-world scenario in which Trenchard's major ancestor would have been a good guy, Um, but I'll just take the anecdote as it comes along in the book. So, when Trenchard pulls out his gun to stand against the Sea Devils, no dying for him after unleashing a righteous hail of bullets. Instead, Hulk writes, in his last moment of life, he realized that he had forgotten to turn the safety catch off his revolver. Then he fell dead. Later, the doctor furtively turns off the catch in order to preserve Trencher's good name. In Running Through Carter's Volume 2, the authors juxtapose these two versions of Trencher's death and find each of them as an appropriate end for the character. Like many other fans who came to the story through the novelization first, I was surprised by how Trencher's death was staged differently on TV. In my own headcanon, I prefer the novelization's version. It certainly fits the tone of the book. Clive Morton, though, was able to lend Trencher a little more dignity on TV than Hulk gave him in the book, and it's fitting that the TV version of the character gets a more heroic exit. The TV staging is a noble fantasy. The book staging is far more wicked and cruel. But then the Doctor commits a generous act, and erases the final trace of Trenchard's fatal mistake. That's a much more literary and emotionally resonant moment. And moments like that are one reason why the novelizations are held in such high regard compared to the TV series. Anyway, Trenchard is irrevocably dead, and a lot of the air goes out of the novelization when he leaves it. The episode 1 material took up nearly a third of the book and episodes 1 through 4 combined take up all but about the last 20 pages. When the Sea Devils arrive in force, they're reduced to being an afterthought in their own book. In short, they're no Governor Trenchard. They're not in the beach sector. We've completely lost track of them. Trenchard, if they reach the naval base... Exactly. They'll tell Hart everything. Mind you, there's a good chance that he won't believe them, of course. Suppose he does. Suppose he turns up here again. Refuse to admit him. Don't be ridiculous. Trenchard, you are running a top security establishment here. Your only responsibility is to the government. What about the doctor? He'll report to unit. They can go to the government. Now, look. You must trust me a little longer. I assure you, all your troubles will soon be over. They sure will be, won't they? It occurs to me that I've been pronouncing Trenchard the... American way rather than the British way, Trenchard. And I apologize for using my native accent rather than the one that most of you are going to be familiar with. It's just difficult for me to, from my perspective, mispronounce the name. So I'm just defaulting to my native Brooklyn. 
Here's a true story, courtesy of the text commentary notes on the DVD release of the Sea Devils. This story was originally to be called the Sea Silurians, except, of course, Malcolm Hulk and the production team quickly realized that the Silurians themselves, if they had been real, could not possibly have existed during the actual Silurian era. So, during part two of the Sea Devils, Hulk has the Doctor explain to us that the Silurians should properly have been called the Eocenes, which leads us to the two biggest problems with the naming of the sequel. First, instead of Sea Silurians, Silurians was right there. And once Hulk decided that the Silurians really were Eocenes, why not just call them the Seocenes? Of course, in the event, it was quickly realized the Silurians couldn't have lived during the Eocene period either, because in the original TV serial, we learned that Silurians coexisted with dinosaurs, and the last dinosaurs would have died out more than 10 million years before that. And the Sea Devils is the name that has stuck right up until this day, 2022. And now we come to the very small part of Doctor Who and the Sea Devils that actually has Sea Devils in it. When talking about the first three chapters of the book, we talked about how Hulk spent much time adding material that was never on TV in the first place. And then before the break, in discussing the middle chapters of the book, we had talked about how Hulk used extra space to give unusual life and depth and death to the tertiary bad guy. The Sea Devils don't take center stage in their own book until the final four chapters, and even then, Hulk never bothers to give them any individual names or personal memories or any real distinguishing characteristics. As a result, you could argue the book is a far less vivid portrayal of the monsters than we got in the novelization of the Silurians. Apart from the Sea Devils themselves, also missing from the book, sadly, is the absolutely lightning-in-a-bottle chemistry between John Pertwee and Katie Manning and Roger Delgado. Watching the TV serial, you'll notice that the novelization doesn't capture a lot of the lovely non-verbal byplay between John and Katie. There are nice moments galore between those two on TV. In episode 2, when the Doctor is trying to lash up a radio transmitter to arrange rescue for him and Joe and Jabba the Hutt from the sea fort, and winds up accidentally tuning in to director Michael Bryant impersonating a DJ and voiceover, he and Joe exchange a lot of funny, rueful looks. The two actors also added a lot of unscripted nonverbal byplay during their prolonged escape from the Master's Prison in Episode 3 to that funny pantomime through a window sequence which the new series openly borrowed for Partners in Crime. Uh, fortunately, though, the brutal bit on TV in episode 4, where the Doctor steals Joe's lunch at the naval base, also doesn't make it into the book. Not every unscripted moment that John Pertwee added to the original scripts in rehearsal uh, was an improvement on Hulk. Another key moment of chemistry lacking is the sword fight between John and Roger that ends episode 2. As staged on TV, the Doctor wins the fight, pauses to eat a sandwich while pressing the point of his foil into the Master's collarbone, and then returns the Master's foil so that they can fight again, and he can defeat the Master a second time. But because that business wasn't in the original script, Hulk doesn't include it in the novelization. That doesn't include the sword fight at all, just giving us a much shorter fist fight. Certainly, though, apart from the missing material, uh, the Master fares better in the book generally than he did the first time Hulk wrote for him in the last few chapters of Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon. Uh, in the earlier Hulk book, 
the master is clearly the doctor's intellectual inferior. This time, though, Hulk gives him two moments of moral superiority over the doctor. In the original Silurian story, the doctor fights to preserve the Silurians at all costs, and the monsters are destroyed only when the humans go behind the doctor's back and blow up the Silurians' base. In the sequel, though, it's the doctor who blows up the Sea Devils. In episode 6 on TV, Pertwee and director Michael Bryant show us why that had to happen. There's a moment where the chief Sea Devil announces his intention to destroy all humanity, and the doctor can't talk him out of it, so Pertwee is given a beat, where you can see the resignation on his face that destruction is the only option left. But again, that was added during rehearsal. It wasn't part of the original scripts, which is what Hulk novelized. So instead, in the book, the doctor is seen to basically just wipe the sea devils out. Even though the master is the one who tried to enlist the sea devils' help, and is still the villain, as Hulk writes for him, he explains to the sea devils why they should ignore the doctor's plea for cooperation with man. The master laughed. Don't listen to this person, I beg you. Man is busily exterminating every other species on this planet. Can you deny that, doctor? The doctor could not deny the truth. Man has been foolish. It is true that many species have been wiped out. The dodo, cut in the master. The passenger pigeon. The great auk. The blue buck. Marsupials in Australia. In the first 70 years of the century, humans have totally destroyed more than 70 species. And, of course, all that was written before we know about the current degree of climate change and the sixth mass extinction. Of course, in the book, even another human bad guy, Parliamentary Private Secretary Walker, tosses in some political digs about humans being unable to share the planet with each other, let alone sea devils. Look at the Middle East, or Northern Ireland, he says. Walker, though, loses his moral authority with his very next sentence, which begins, If we could catch some of these things alive and put them in a zoo... But the master is still given a point. As written in the book, the doctor escapes from two sea devil guards during the episode 5 material by grabbing a ray gun and shooting a guard dead. That at least did not happen on TV. Not that the master is perfect, as he also takes to contemplating all sorts of interesting ways to kill the doctor, mainly slowly, as Hulk writes. And then, in his second instance of being given the moral high ground, the master is given the literal last word as he observes the destruction which the doctor had unleashed. Very clever of you, said the master. Do you realize you have just committed mass murder? Honestly, nobody comes out of the book looking fabulous. Not the doctor, not the sea devils, not even one of the minor human characters who kills a sea devil in self-defense. Hulk writes, The master looked down at the chief sea devil's body. You have just killed one of the most intelligent creatures that ever walked on this earth he told Petty Officer Myers. Really, sir, said the Chief Petty Officer. They look like big frogs to me. As he escapes at the end of the book, you realize that the Master might actually be one of the least objectionable characters in it. Captain Hart, this story's stand-in for the Brigadier, is given a few dimensions, at least as he evolves from a narrow-minded naval base administrator to a warm ally of the Doctor. At one point, Hulk explains the deadening personality of George Trenchard had formed a bond between them. Hart successfully defends his very slow drift toward giving the doctor all the support he needs. Quote, clearly skeptical that lizards could be in command of a British submarine, telling Joe that we aren't all stupid in the Navy. Captain Hart is played on TV by Edwin Richfield, whose career is described in one of the greatest DVD text commentary captions ever written for the Doctor Who line. This is from the Sea Devil's Disc. 
After leaving the RSC, he was asked to play a giant slug in a 1984 Doctor Who. Who boy, that's not putting too fine a point on it. Commander Ridgway, an earlier TV role for Donald Sumter, later seen in Hellbent, is demoted to lieutenant here in the book, which dovetails with director Michael Bryant's rueful lament on the DVD commentary that he got wrapped on the knuckles for casting such a young actor to play the commander of a nuclear submarine. Hulk rubs in the man's youth, making the point, as he does, that it was incredible to think that a man who had just been in school a year ago uh, was now entrusted with millions of pounds worth of naval equipment. In terms of other deviations from the final TV episodes, Hulk optimistically changes uh, the episode 3 cliffhanger to involve six sea devils emerging from the surf. On TV, there was but one. In the book, Joe does her own stunts. On TV, that was uh, stuntman Stuart Fell, who lacks Katie's comely figure, perhaps. The resolution to the episode 3 cliffhanger, early in episode 4, is given more drama, as Hulk has the Doctor and Joe running blindly through the minefield as a tactic to get a landmine between themselves and the pursuing beast. The Sea Devil attack on the submarine is a lot bloodier in the book, resulting in seven casualties, as opposed to the uh, none on uh, TV. The Doctor and Hart also need explosives to break into the Chateau prison after the Sea Devils invade. Lesser TV speaking roles, such as uh, lead telegrapher Bowman, played by Alec Wallace, later seen in Revenge of the Cybermen by the same director, is dropped for the book without leaving any visible space in the plot. Before the Master leaves Trencher to be killed, he reveals all the details of his alien Time Lord biology. All of this detail and characterization is preferable to the long uh, stretches on TV filled up instead by film shots of Royal Navy maneuvers and similar stock footage. I mean, don't get me wrong, that stuff is gorgeous on TV, but it wouldn't translate so well in print. And the stuff that Hulk puts in is uh, equally enthralling, at least from my point of view. Reading the episode 5 material, which barely takes up 10 pages in the book, and that includes Alan Willow's illustrations, also shows how much padding uh, it took to get a TV story to 25 minutes in the early 70s. Uh, TV has long dialogue scenes with changes of alliance and capture-escape capture loops. The chief sea devil endorses first the Doctor's peace plan and then flip-flops to adapt the Master's kill-the-humans plan. And then the Doctor escapes the sea devil's underwater base, which takes the submarine crew with him, only to be promptly recaptured at the cliffhanger. Hulk keeps in all Episode 5's major plot beats for the book, but condenses everything to a bare minimum of text. Walker, this serial's contribution to the long run of obnoxious civil servants featured throughout the Pertwee era, is a bit of an odd duck. He brings a strange sort of levity to the script in the last third of the story, which is traditionally not, not the time to introduce new major characters. On TV, Walker boasts a sort of hollow good cheer. He asks Bowman to introduce himself, and upon hearing the man's rank is visibly flustered with no ready response before he can repost with a jolly good. But any subtle shading uh, brought to the role by actor Martin Body is pared down for the book, where Walker spends more time eating and bossing people around and being generally reprehensible. Hulk spends a lot of time describing Walker's menus, which actually sound pretty good, to be fair. There's other great stuff, too, as long as you're not reading this to get a sense for what the TV story or the acting was like. Hulk supplies an explanation for what May Day means and why it supplanted SOS as a nautical distress call. In the episode 4 material is a long description of what sonar is, written in the style of a junior science textbook. But it's not dry and stuffy. Hulk also finds time for humor. 
In an emergency, he writes, a naval officer is not supposed to start seeing imaginary giant tadpoles. He is expected to issue orders and do things. There's a truly awful joke about the Strand, overheard from a radio broadcast in the book. It's only when the TV plot takes over the final sixth of the book that things get watered down, if you'll pardon the pun. In general, Doctor Who and the Sea Devils is a very rich experience and very different from its TV counterpart. It's more caustic, too. Um, just be cautioned that it's not a book about Sea Devils. But all of the other or new material about the island prison, about the master, about Governor Trenchard, makes this one of the great novelizations. Even if it should have been called the Sea Lorians instead. Coming up in a moment... I am thrilled to have Fraser Gregory join me as my guest. This is the first time that I've ever recorded him. He's quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasters. And let's give a listen to what he has to say about Doctor Who and the Sea Devils. Who's got the power, the power to read? Who looks into books for the answers we need? And we're back, and I am thrilled to be joined by a new guest for the first time. Fraser, please introduce yourself. Hi everybody, uh, my name's Fraser Gregory, I am also known as Champion of the Damned on Twitter, um, a long-time Doctor Who fan, only just got into podcasting this last year and delighted to be invited onto Doctor Who Literature to talk about one of the Target novelizations. I've never actually seen Fraser face-to-face before today, but we've been in pretty much constant communication for the last year. I think we met as part of the uh, Joe Ford expanded universe of podcasters. <laughs> I like that's an official thing now. The uh, Joe Ford expanded universe. Our army is growing in numbers. Yes, the ham fam. We are growing. The ham fam from hamster with a blunt pen knife. How many hamsters have you done now? Oh. Uh, either by yourself or with uh, Simon as a tag team. Oh, not nearly as many as Simon because he is prolific because... Generally, what happens is we agree a time to record, and then one of my children goes poorly, and so I have to pull out. So um, Joe and Simon record separately. But I have done what have I done now? So I've done. I started off in the very first podcast I ever did was a hamster, and that was the Space Museum. That's where I got my nickname, the Champion of the Damned. Um, we did then did the two Doctors, which hasn't been released yet with Simon, and Invasion of Time and the Armageddon Factor. Um, we've done Ascension of the Cybermen and The Timeless Children, and I've done by myself The Eleventh Hour, which is one of my favorite, all-time favorite stories. So what book are we here to talk about today, Fraser? Um, I mean, it's, it's not a very good time to talk about this one, I don't think, um, but it is The Sea Devils. The who? The Sea Devils. Never heard of them. No, no. We just, of course, because we are recording this a few days after Eve of the Daleks dropped on New Year's Day, the 2022 special. Yeah. And this was spoiled for me by a trending Twitter result in between the episode airing in the UK and my getting to watch it, which is my own stupid fault for going to Twitter in the first place. What did I think was going to happen? But (laughs) you would have been... I assume you would have been getting it cold. What was your reaction when the trailer, which was intentionally kept out of focus, tightened up the focus to reveal everybody's favorite uh, secondary villain from Warriors of the Deep? <laughs> it was it was just pure excitement. It was 
you know, we would had Eve of the Daleks, which was a very enjoyable episode. I didn't know if we were going to get a, a trailer or not. Um, but obviously, you know, it started to wait at the end. It started to drop. And then as soon as the creature started coming into focus and you realized what it was and legend of the sea devils dropped, then it was just uh, it was fantastic. It's one of these things that's been hyped a little bit without any good reason. I mean, people have been saying the Sea Devils are coming back into Doctor Who for quite some time now. Um, you know, people thought Praxeus was going to be a Sea Devil story and turned out not to be, and there was uproar that it wasn't something that it never was going to be. Um, so, yeah, it's really exciting to actually have have the Sea Devils coming back because they are, they are an iconic um, part of Doctor Who. Um, I mean... I know we, we had to talk about the the book, but my introduction to the Sea Devils was through the actual, um, you know, television show. It was so the episode aired in 1972, <laughs> yep. and you look to be not much older than I am, so it's highly <laughs> unlikely you were watching it live. How did you no. come to the Sea Devils on TV? It was repeated by the BBC in 1992. Um, I can't remember the exact details. I know there's people out there that will be able to tell me what they were, but there was a whole bunch of repeats of Doctor Who on the BBC in 1992-93. I don't know if the Sea Devils was one that was because they'd managed to recolorize it, um, like they had done with the Demons, or whether they just wanted to show it for for fun. But it was repeated once a week um, in 1992. So prior to that, you know, all the sort of clip shows that you would have of Doctor Who, any sort of documentary, would always feature the Sea Devils. It would always be that scene of the six of them coming out of um, the ocean and in part four or five. And that's, you know, such an iconic scene. And then to watch the the rest of the the story um, was my real introduction into, um, into the Sea Devils, but also a lot of John Pertwee as well. That was one of the first... Um, John Pertwee stories that I can remember watching. Um, so yeah, a big part of my sort of development into a fan. Um, very, very iconic creation. How did you come by the book? So the book was gifted to me by um, a friend at work who goes by the Twitter handle at Rev Chips. He um, had two or three boxes of, of Doctor Who books that he was uh, wanting rid of. Um, I'm quite happy to take anything Doctor Who related. So uh, I took those off his hands. It was a, you know, those, you see those um, those shows where they open up storage lockers and they don't know what's inside. And it was very much like that, just opening these these boxes. Um, I had some handbooks in there. I had like um, quiz books. We had um, missing adventures, new adventures, um, and about half a dozen target novelizations and one of them was uh, Mac Hulk's Sea Devil so um, the copy I have is a very battered copy it's missing the top corner um, so hold your hold your copy up let's see which one you have so you're like me you do not have the original 1974 version with the Chris Achilles cover you have the uh, the reprint cover yep. without John Pertwee or the master on it yep. but unlike my copy yours is missing the upper right hand corner and the target yes. logo what do you yeah. think happened there? Anything could have happened. Um, it's it's certainly been well well read 
um, well thumbed through. Um, it's a uh, you know it's 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 sticking together. It's readable. Um, the the front page tells me that it used to be owned by a Richard Straw and was once sold for forty pence. It's probably worth at least twice that now on your internet uh, resale website of choice. But uh, Mr. Straw, in the unlikely event you're listening to this podcast, we have your book. Please write in with your best offer and we'll return it to you, possibly. <laughs> so what was – I'm assuming that you came to the Sea Devils through the book rather than the seeing the, the episode first. You read the book first and then – got to see the the episode is that right or see that's an interesting debate because there was a time in my life when i knew exactly which classic series serials i had seen first and which ones i had read first i don't remember when i got the sea devils book but i'm pretty sure that i wouldn't have seen the sea devils until it came around to my station channel 21 in 1987 so i probably read the book first but I don't remember. I do know that I can tell you the first book that I bought after I'd seen the TV episode was The Ark in Space. Yeah. And it was interesting because I had just seen Ark in Space, you know, not even a month earlier. So it was uh-huh. fun to go in and see what Ian Martyr had changed. Mm. Yeah. But for the Sea Devils, well, I'm trying to remember, but with the Sea Devils, I know that reading the book was a little off-putting to me because when you're 11 or 12 years old and you're growing up in suburbia, you're not really ready for Malcolm Hulk's level of cynicism. Mm. And yeah. the whole bit about Governor Trenchard, you know, forgetting to turn off the safety catch and not being able to pull the trigger and the doctor very so kindly turning off the safety catch to make Trenchard appear more heroic posthumously. Yeah. I mean, when you're 11 or 12 years old and you're used to reading Choose Your Own Adventures and, you know, compilations of Charles M. Schulz and Peanuts, that's a very dark kind of writing. It is. It's a dark book, this. Um, that's what struck me because, um, you know, I read it for the first time, um, I think it was last year. Um, and that that was what kind of struck me about it was how 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 dark it is for essentially, it's a children's book, essentially, and it's it's got quite some dark themes in it, doesn't it? Um, I want to say it wasn't until I was older that I appreciated what he was doing. And uh, you haven't heard the other half of this episode yet where I go through uh, my five-year-old blog post, which is my deep dive into the story. But every time I go back and I read the book, I get more out of it. So like chapter one, which is about the, you know, presumably white English sailor who is the only person on bo- on board the, his ship to befriend the uh Jamaican sailor. I mean, I wouldn't have realized when I was 11 years old how radical that was. And then, of course, the bit about the poem, which the doctor and Joe discover as they're walking along the island to get to the master's prison. I didn't understand what he was trying to say with all that. And it wasn't until I became a parent that I'm reading this chapter. This is the perfect way of raising a child because the way the doctor treats Joe and, you know, teaching her as they walk along, that's exactly what a parent does. Yeah. So I have said to my child many times, physical exercise without mental (laughs) exercise is a bore. I am quite, I'm raising her by Malcolm Hulk. And every time she asks me, when are we going to get there? I always say, as the porcupine said to the turtle, when we get there. 
and she's sick of my saying it, but she doesn't realize it all comes out of this book. So this book has become my parenting manual. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Um, That that bit of the front at the start with the where they are, um, you know, walking from the where they land the boat to the fort. That's that's a big section that's been added to this book. Um, Do you think they could have? Hall could have made a bit more out of that. As you'll hear me say when you hear the other half of this episode, it seems to me that he was planning a 800-page classic, you know, three-volume British novel on the lives of the people who live on this island. And that's what he was planning to do and just didn't get around to doing it. And instead, we have a 133-page book that is 90 pages insular villagers and then maybe 20 pages of the Sea Devils. Yeah. Yeah, because it was a really good addition. Um, you know, uh, by when I read this book the first time last year, I hadn't watched the Sea Devils in quite some time. So, you know, my memory of what happens in the the broadcast version wasn't as keen. And you know, going back and watching episode one, which just blazes past, um, having that scene where they read the poem, it seemed very. Um, portentous to us it seemed as if you know this was going to come back later in the book that um, the sea devils had maybe visited the island centuries ago and the whole sort of mythology had built up around the sea devils in this community which then kind of just fizzled out unfortunately I thought that was a really a bit of a missed opportunity to add even more um, depth and colour when you're watching it on TV, you're wondering where is all this good stuff about walking to uh, the island prison? Where is the stuff about Henry VIII and Sandown Castle? Yeah. And the part that is missing the worst for me is when the prison officer is taunting the doctor about the three types of people, three types of people, people who have been in prison, people who are in prison, and people who will be in prison. That is a great life lesson, and it's not on television at all. So I must have read the book first because I distinctly recall watching part one on TV and saying, this is garbage. Where's the best part? (laughs) Yeah. Having said that, though, there's a lot of good stuff that's in the broadcast version, which is missing from the book as well. Um, Notably, the Doctor and the Master's sword fight. That is just completely exercised. All that happens in, in the the book is the master pulls a gun on the doctor and Trenchard walks in the room just as he's about to pull the trigger. You know, you miss all the Ikea and sandwich eating and yes, you know, so it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit swings and roundabouts, isn't it? It's a bit, you know, take with one hand and, and give with the other um, in a certain respect. My recollection is that Hulk was working from his draft scripts rather than the camera scripts. So anything that was, put in because they needed to take up space in the episode like some of the endless vistas of uh, the boats in episode five yeah that stuff gets excised for the book and this is just a common theme with hulk because you know here we are this is early on in the podcast and hulk you know wrote like three of the first nine books so there was a lot of hulk at the beginning and then there's less of him and then he dies in 1979 and he stops writing entirely but what we're seeing a lot of at the beginning of this podcast are Malcolm Hulk books where he spends 50 pages on part one and then 10 pages on part six. And I already have a guest lined up for Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And that book is the most radical example of how he restructures 
the book, and he tells the story that he wants to tell. Then he'll spend 80% of the book on parts of one, two, and three. And then there's no time left for the resolution. Then all the typical episode five chases disappear. Yeah. I've, I've literally written this down um, coming in. You know, part one ends on page 47 of a, like you say, 139 page book. So more than a third of the way through the book and into the fourth chapter before part one ends. Part two comes in at 76, page 76. So we're halfway through the book. You get part three finishing on page 93, part four on page 116. Ten pages later on page 126 is when part five finishes. And then, you know, to the end of of page 139. So that's exactly it. There is so much detail at the front of the book, so much packed in, and then it all just um, gets, gets condensed at the end. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think um, the the pacing of the novel itself is is absolutely fine, but I also think the pacing of the broadcast version is absolutely fine. Um, the bits that are missing from the book, um, which is all the action sequences, um, you know, it's it's the navy fighting the sea devils essentially in in parts five and six. Would they transfer well over to the the book? Or would you just have you know ten pages of of Matt Hulk describing soldiers sh- shooting each other? Um, it's not, probably not going to work. Um, it works better having those scenes at the start, um, with you know the bit more interaction between the Doctor and Joe and is it Robbins that he steals the boat from? Yes, Robbins. Yeah. So that that works better in the book. Um, whereas obviously the the broadcast version is awash with the the full backing of the Navy. Um, you know, two dozen able seaman jumping out of a hovercraft um works really well on your television whereas you know it wouldn't necessarily work as well in the book and on tv he doesn't steal the boat from robbins he buys the boat from robbins with a wink it does that's there's there's so many sort of differences between the novel and the book um some of them are really quite subtle like that where you know he steals the boat in the book he um, you know, buys it in the broadcast version. There's more radical things like, you know, missing out the the fight scene. Um, it's just it's fascinating to to compare the two because I watched the Sea Devils um last week in advance of us recording. You know, I watched it. I've read the book so I could, you know, see where they marry up and um, fascinating to see, you know, the extra bits and the missing bits. Yeah, I'm just curious because those fight scenes on TV or the sword fight, for example, might have translated very well to print if someone like Terrence Dix writes them, or they might have just fallen flat. I mean, I think the best example of how the books just utterly fail to capture the TV production is part four of Web of Fear, because Similarly, in the novelization of Web of Fear, Terence lavishes 30 pages on part one. It's cinematic. Part four, he rushes through in about 12 pages. And just part four on television is soul-crushing because every character dies, and the one character who survives gets taken over by the enemy. So you're watching part four on TV. It is expertly directed by Dougie Campfield. It is a lesson in despair. 
And just when it can't get any worse, Professor Travers comes back and he's now a tool of the great intelligence. It's probably the most devastating one Doctor Who episode ever since the end of Dalek's master plan. But we only know that because that episode was recovered and it's just so, so good. Whereas if you're just reading the book, it has no impact at all. The fight scenes are minimally staged. It's only 12 pages. And it's almost as if Terrence is aware he's writing now for an audience of eight-year-olds and he has to make it a little less violent, so there's no impact at all. This is still early days for the target line, so there's still room for a little more violence and horror. But Hulk just opts to go for character moments instead, like the doctor tricks Robbins into stealing the boat by feigning a war wound, but he can't remember which war a man of his age would have fought in. So he mentions the Crimean War, which would have been 120 years ago. That's a great character moment. And um, along the same lines... um... Oh, shoot, I lost my train of thought there. The Clangers bit. The Clangers yeah. bit would work great on television because you get to have Roger Delgado doing his thing. There's no way to make that work in the book. No, there's not. It's the, the sandwich scene as well. Um, not the one in the sword fight, but the one where, um, is it Jane Blythe brings in the sandwiches for Joe and the doctor takes them and says, there's no time for sandwiches, Joe, and stands and eats them all while she's talking to, to Captain Hart and it's played purely for laughs and it works and it wouldn't translate well into the book as well. Uh, there's, there's... Although the book spends a lot of time on, uh, I think his name is Walker. He's the sleazy politician du jour. Yes. Chin I by another name. That... <laughs> Chin by another name. Yes. Very good. I think he's eating something in every single page <laughs> of the book that he appears in. Yeah. And we, we get a good description of, of, exactly what it is that he's that he's having as well he's cool chicken salty potatoes leaf salad celery it's quite and the bit where he's having the sweets by himself yes. and captain hart and joe oversee it and they ask him to share and he said these are specially so, made for my taste so you wouldn't appreciate them yeah yeah so let me ask you a question mm-hmm. i'm getting my joe ford on there let me ask you a question so, have you read Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters? I have not read that one, no. Um, you know, I'm a lot of people, you know, came to the targets and then, you know, came to the, the show. Me, I, my introduction to the target novels was The Dalek Invasion of Earth, um, which I got from the library when I was about 10. And that was the only one my local library had. Um, 10 years old, I didn't have the gumption to think perhaps the library could order me some in and I could ask the library for some more Doctor Who books. Um, but not long after that is when I started collecting the VHS. And so I kind of skewed away from the targets. So I haven't actually read that many targets. I am sort of building up a collection now, thanks to, you know, generous gifts um, from Michael from work, um, from Cy Hart, who's, who's gifted me a few. Um, and eBay as well. You know, I'm collecting a few from eBay, but that's one I haven't actually read yet. Cave Monsters is almost the gold standard, probably one of the best five in the whole Target series. Um, you can also listen to my episode on the Cave Monsters for this podcast with Stacy Smith question mark. That was episode five. What's remarkable about the Cave Monsters, which is Hulk's first novelization, is he narrates several chapters from the point of view of the Cave Monsters, or as we call them on TV, the Silurians. So there's three distinct. Silurian characters, 
each one gets their own name, which they didn't get on TV. And two of them become POV characters for the for the book. Mm-hmm. And then Hulk also gets into the POV of a lot more of the villainous characters. So Dr. Quinn, the Fulton McKay character, has several chapters narrated from his POV, including his death scene. As much as I love the Sea Devils, and like I said, it's almost been my parenting manual, <laughs> at least the chapter one parts of it. What Hulk does not do in this book is what he does in the cave monsters. He does not narrate whole scenes from the POV of everyone on the cast. Trenchard is we'll talk about this again in a few minutes. Trenchard is terrific in this book. Mm-hmm. But he's really the only one who gets the chapters narrated from his point of view. We don't get a lot of time in the master's head. And we get no time at all from the Sea Devils. The Sea Devils are not named. We never we never learn how any of them think. And like you say, if they're only in parts five and six on TV, that's 24 pages of the book. Yeah. So although this book is called Doctor Who and the Sea Devils, there ain't a lot of Sea Devils in it. Yeah, it's, you know, one of the things that struck us about that first chapter is, you know, Hulk builds a good world around, you know, sets a good scene with the sailors that are on the boat. You know, you've got um, you've got nicknames for them, like the Jamaican this chapter ends with essentially a sea devil popping out. You know, it's it, it follows the bit where the boats attack, the boats sinking, the lifeboats are destroyed, the um the sailors on the radio radio in the Mayday, and the sea devil attacks. Um so I'll just read exactly what it says. It says, um Mayday, Mayday, this is SS Pevensey Castle. We are abandoning ship. Give me the microphone, ordered Mason. He reached out and took the microphone from Sparks. We are being attacked, Mason screamed in the microphone. The bottom of our ship has been ripped out. Men are being pulled down into the sea. Mason stopped abruptly and stared at the sea devil now standing in the doorway. It had the general shape of a man, yet its body was covered in green scales and the face was that of a snout-nosed reptile. Sea lizards, said Sparks, seeking some explanation, however unscientific, for the creature standing before them. The sea devil turned its head and looked at Sparks as though it had understood what he had said. Then it raised its right paw and Mason saw that it carried a highly sophisticated weapon, a sort of gun. In the broadcast version, the introduction of the sea devil is very slow. It does that classic Doctor Who thing of, you know, keeping the monster hidden. And, you know, it's already at the end of sort of part one, you see the full shot of one. Hulk just kind of shoots his bolt there and lays it out and says names it it's a sea devil here it is in full view with within the first chapter it's almost as if he's he's kind of um working on the assumption we know what the sea devils are we know what it is and he's not going to explain it because we know that's how it kind of felt to me more importantly, I want you to read more of the book because that was phenomenal. I think we'll just devote the rest of this interview to having you just read selections from the book out of me. <laughs> I've got a few. I've got a few passages marked out for for talking about, so I can do, certainly do that. So, chapter two is the chapter where the Doctor and Joe wander across the island, and they talk about Henry VIII, and the Doctor reads the poem, and he puzzles it out, and you get the philosophy of the prison guards, and then of course you have this great. Alan Willow full-page illustration of the master with his head down looking sorrowful. And chapter two goes from page 10 to page 33. 
So that is a 24-page chapter. Hulk spends as much time on Chapter 2, which is just the Doctor, the Master, and Joe, and no monsters at all, as he does on Episodes 5 and 6, <laughs> which is the only part of the book that has the Sea Devils. Because that bit starts on page 116 and ends on page 139. So Hulk is much more interested in the supporting characters. He's already written the cave monsters. He's already yeah. told a 160-page book about intelligent reptiles. Yeah. He's not just going for character beat, character beat, character beat. So I found this off-putting, or I must have found it off-putting when I was 11 or 12. And when I got to the TV episode, it's like watching a different story entirely. The older I get, the more I appreciate the book, and the more I appreciate the TV episodes too, because now when I watched it as part of my pilgrimage uh, this past spring, I'd never enjoyed it more than this past year watching it in yeah. sequence along with the rest of the Pertwee era, because this is Barry Letts and Terrence Dix and Malcolm Hook at the height of their powers. The show has never looked better. The actors have never had more fun together. Absolutely. The entire production team is in sync. And then, of course when you watch the 80s when the show is blowing up you just long for the days in the early 70s when everything was magical yeah i am um, i started watching planet of the spiders um yesterday because i got that for christmas on dvd so i've started watching planet of the spiders and mm. you know it occurred to me that a lot of people what they say about planet of the spiders is it's it's the let's and dick's greatest hits compilation you know there's everything in there um that you would associate with with john pertwee's era I think the Sea Devils is exactly that as well, except possibly a bit more because it has got the master in. In Planet of the Spiders, um, the character of Lupton is the master in all but name and characterization, unfortunately. Um, you know, you could easily take him out and put Roger Delgado as master in and the story would work just as well. Come back the Sea Devils, it's got it's got all those elements. It's got um, it's got the master in. It's got Joe Grant in. It's got it hasn't got unit, unfortunately, but it's got the navy instead of unit. It's got the chase scenes, uh, jet skiing, you know, in the English Channel. It's got all those elements, um, and it's also quite a. It's one of Pertwee's softer performances as the Doctor. He's you know because they are playing it a lot more for laughs when he is doing things like stealing sandwiches off Joe. Then it comes across as a lot more likable. Um, so that was, that was, yeah, that was what I was thinking. Um, and the sea devils on TV has this hilarious bit where the doctor is tied up with his hands behind the chair in the master's room. And Joe is peering into the window and they start frantically miming at one another to coordinate <laughs> their escape attempt. Now, you know, from watching the Pertwee era that this is RTD's template for New Who. When you watch The Green Death, The Green Death is a new series adventure. Mm -hmm. It is a personal soap operatic tale, a wash in emotion, and then you have an overlay of ridiculous monsters on top of it to make it a Doctor Who story. <laughs> Every RTD story from Rose all the way up through Journey's End, or I guess the end of time, is him rewriting the green death. So that bit in the sea devils with the doctor and Joe on screen, miming at one another was stolen almost mime for mime yeah. in partners in crime. Yeah. So the biggest epiphany that I got watching the Pertwee era last year for my pilgrimage is that the Pertwee era is the RTD era and it's doctor who's golden age. And you don't yeah. get 
in the new series without the Pirwi era. So let me ask you, or as Joe would say, let me ask you a question. Who is your favorite doctor? Matt Smith. Matt Smith. Now, who was your first doctor, your very first TV doctor? The first one was Sylvester McCoy. So Sylvester McCoy is the one that I grew up watching. Um, my first broadcast episode was Remembrance of the Daleks. Um, so season 25, season 26, I watched live as a, um eight and nine-year-old. Um, going into the VHS age, um, when I was buying the buying the videos, it became Tom Baker slash John Pertwee. Um, so John Pertwee was tied quite a bit with with Tom Baker as my one of my favourite doctors for quite some time, based on stories such as the Sea Devils and the Demons, and the fact that I'm a sort of teenage boy, I want drama and I want action and adventure and John Pertwee is the James Bond doctor isn't he he is the one that's you know swooping left right and center so that really that side really appealed to me as I've sort of grown up a bit and you know kind of looking back over when the the season eight box set came out and you're watching all those stories in a row and you he's, he's a bit more problematic I think he's a bit harder to to enjoy because he is quite he has got quite an arrogant side to him and he doesn't always um show the compassion towards those around him that you would expect from you know your modern doctors um i think part of the problem is that doctor who whichever room whichever doctor whichever room they walk into they are the cleverest person in that room and they know that all other doctors will then work to establish themselves in that room as the cleverest person. Apart from John Pertwee, the third doctor will walk into a room, know that he's the cleverest person and automatically expect everyone else to know that and bow down to his. And when that doesn't happen, that's when he, he kind of erupts. So that's why I was, you know, so happy to watch the sea devils again, because it is that softer side to him. That is that, you know, playing it for, for laughs. That scene with Joe where they are communicating through the window is a beautiful scene because they are just miming and mugging away and whatnot. But it really speaks to the relationship now between the Doctor and Joe that they can just make silly faces through the window and each of them know exactly what they mean. There's the equivalent scene in the in the novel where um, towards the end where the Doctor is building the machine that's going to revive the sea devils with the master and joe sees him through the window and he sort of signals with these fingers behind his you know he, he says something out loud and then he signals his fingers behind his back so she understands um what the plan is and i like that scene in the novel because other than that there's not a great deal for joe grant to do in this book which is a shame because in the broadcast version she really stands on her own she um you know escapes the the guards you know in episode two when um you know the doctor sends her away and the guards stop her she escapes she goes and rescues the doctor it's not the doctor that picks the lock on his handcuffs as it is in the novel it's joe she can pick a lock she can distract a guard she can um pilot a hovercraft even you know there's a lot in there for joe to do if it to stand up and do and 
it's a little bit lacking in the book. There's elements there, but she's a little bit more sidelined in the novel than she is in the TV version. So let me ask you this. You talk about the abrasiveness of John Pertwee in season eight, which just came out on Blu-ray a little less than a year ago, I guess. The Pertwee era was entirely the work of a two-man production team, and then it was the same writers every year and almost the same core of directors every year. You know, occasionally a Tim Coombe gets fired uh, because the mind of evil goes over length, <laughs> but it's generally one, it's basically the same core of yeah. six or seven directors doing five stories a season. So the Pertwee era is very tightly knit. It's really the first era of the show to have character arcs. You had recurring characters in the Hardinal era with the meddling monk. You had a recurring character in the the Trouton era with the Travers family. But with Mike Yates, it's the first time in any of Doctor Who's first 11 years that you have a character arc where a guest character goes from point A to point B along the course of the series. So bearing that in mind, and yes, when I was watching Terror of the Autons as part of my pilgrimage, I was disturbed by how cruelly the Doctor treats Joe Grant. But on the other hand, when you consider where Joe Grant ends up, it has to be that way, because if the Doctor is going to fall in love with Joe and cry when she leaves, for dramaturgical purposes, they have to knock it along in their in their first appearance. They have to go from a bad place to a great place. Yeah. So when Pertwee turns to the camera in episode one of The Green Depth and says, the fledgling flies the coop, you have to have followed him on that journey where she is the ham-fisted bun vendor, which is the name of Joe Ford's podcast now, of course. Ha ha. And <laughs> they have to start off in this bad place. So you can get to the point where the doctor mourns her loss, which, you know, no doctor had ever been that put out by the loss of a companion ever since Susan left him at the end of the very first production year. So for me, the Pertwee era just does it better than almost any other era of the show. And even when Pertwee is being a jerk, he's doing it for a point and for a purpose. And I think his politics are much more progressive now than is he's properly given credit for. The Sea Devils is smack bang in the middle yeah. of Joe Grant's story arc. It was aired as the middle episode of her middle season. It was made a little bit earlier than that, obviously. But it's right smack in the middle. So uh, on TV, the fact that the Doctor and Joe have this great chemistry, that's really the moment where they click because they started off in a bad place and they're yep. going to end with her leaving him for a younger version of himself. <laughs> so the Sea Devils really is the height of their, so to speak, love affair, yeah. never minding the age gap. Uh, the books are written out of order. So the book is coming out two and a half years after the TV episode airs. The book comes out after Planet of the Spiders, more than a year after The Green Death, which hasn't been novelized yet. So when Hulk is writing the book, he's not really writing it to their character arc on TV, is he? No. No, he's not. Um, and yet you say it is, it is an early book, isn't it? So um, it's potentially still finding the feet a little bit. And, you know, as a range, what are we, what are we looking for here? Are we looking for... Um, you know, because some of them later on are, are very, very, um, you know, identical to 
to what the broadcast version was, whereas this is this is clearly Malcolm Hulk taking what he wanted to put on the screen, but couldn't. You know, um, again, a noticeable difference is that the Doctor and Joe get stranded on an oil rig rather than a sea fort, which is what was initially scripted. Michael E. Bryant, um, you know, said, no, that's never going to happen. We're never going to be able to film on an oil rig, so we'll go to this fort instead, and that's changed. So it's it's very striking as, as to what Hulk wanted to put out there. Um, so, yeah, you, you would expect maybe that it is Terrence Dix that is going to come in and tweak things to make the character of, of Joe Grant you know, work along because you're right. It, it is a very um, much an arc as just as much for the Doctor as it is for for Joe Grant. If you think Terror of the Autons, um, I, I would love to know who who came up with this, but I can't remember. I read it on Twitter, but essentially, the Doctor in um, season eight is a jilted teenager. Hmm. He's he's been grounded by his mum and dad. He's First girlfriend's left him, <laughs> so he's a sulky, a sulky teenager all the way through that. In so then you have that season, you have the season where you know it is clicking with with John and Katie, and it's clicking with the Doctor and Joe, and you have ones like the Sea Devils, which is where this partnership really shines. And then you have um, season ten, where you have things like Carnival of Monsters, where she is quite happy to prick his ego and take him down a, a level, and you you. You have Planet of the Daleks where it's kind of telegraphed. You think she's going to leave in that one, but then she doesn't. But she does in the next one, which the exact same thing happens. So there's that definite arc there. Um, you're right. And what, all the better for it. Those are all great points. So how how did the Matt Smith era become your favourite then? Um, it's, it, as a doctor, he is, he is my favourite doctor. I think he just encapsulates you know, everything that I, you know, want in a doctor. He's got that sort of eccentricity about him, but he's also got empathy. He's got, you know, he understands. He has this this bit where, you know, he doesn't understand human social interactions, which is a very Stephen Moffat thing. We see this with Peter Capaldi's doctor as well, where the, you know, don't quite get humans, but he when he needs to, he does, and the empathy really comes out with him. Um, it's it's just a brilliant performance by him. It's really magical, and it's got that un, sort of indefinable quality um, of doctorishness about him. It's kind of similar with with you have it with Tom Baker as well. He's another one of my favorites. He had, you know, the the comedy side of him, but he was also very alien as well. And um, you know, I, I, again as a teenager growing up. I love the action of John Pertwee, but I love the comedy of of Tom Baker. Um, so those are my favourite Doctors. If you want, you know, what's my favourite era? It's possibly the Hinchcliffe era, sort of season twelve, or it's going to be the um, the Cartmel era of of twenty five and twenty six. One because that's what I grew up with, and two because you know again you see that development. Um, we see the development of Ace as the companion going from the teenage girl of Dragonfire um, through season 25, learning to, you know, stand on two feet to coming out with season 26, which is more of a season about Ace than it is the Doctor. So that's, those are kind of my favourite seasons and my favourite Doctors. 
it's funny about the Hinchcliffe era. So Hinchcliffe produces 16 serials, right? He does uh, the back four stories of season 12. Robot was done as part of the Let's Dick's team months earlier. He then does all six televised serials in seasons 13 and mm-hmm. 14, and then is reassigned after Talons of Wing Chiang. Of Hinchcliffe's 16 episodes, I think eight of them, fully half of his run, appears in the top 25 in the year 2014 DWM survey, which went yeah. all the way from top to bottom, 1 to 241. And, you know, Fear Her and Twin Dilemma are at the bottom of the list. But eight of the top 25 is, is, is Hinchcliffe. So you don't get a better run of sustained excellence than that. For me, I mean, my answer changes depending on the day. I love, love, <laughs> love the black and white stuff. I think the Hartnell is the boldest and most experimental era on the show. Davison is where I came in. Yeah. If you've heard my rather um, over-the-top defensive season 20 on the Nyman Be Praised. Celebration. Not defense. Celebration. Very good. You've been listening. That's right. <laughs> um, I had started with Peter Davison. So I came in a time flight. And by the time I got to Caves of Andrewsani Part 4, I was just, you know, devastated that he was gone. But then my PBS station, because Caves of Andrewsani airs on a Friday night, the following Monday, we cycled back around to Robot. Yeah. And so Monday night, Part 1 of Robot airs. We left the house about halfway through, so I had to videotape the last 12 episodes on VHS. The next morning, I woke up with the flu, 103 fever, flat on my back, couldn't go to school for the next three days. I watched those 12 minutes of part one of Robot over and over and over and over again, and Tom Baker just imprinted on my brain. So on Friday night, I went from being devastated about Peter Davis and leaving the show, and by Tuesday afternoon, I'm like, Peter who? This is the Tom Baker show for me. <laughs> But then, you know, Robot airs Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. Friday night comes around, Ark in Space Part 1, and all of a sudden you have a brand new Tom Baker. He's gone from very comic under Let's and Dicks to very dark and nasty under Hinchcliffe. And the character changes Whiplash. So when I realized what Tom Baker could do, Tom Baker became my favorite doctor for the longest time. Then I discovered the Pertwee era, and then, of course, the Hardnell era starts airing. So at any given day, any one of the first five Doctors could be my favorite. Uh, Colin Baker, I've come to appreciate, but the stories I think are pretty darn near unwatchable. <laughs> and the McCoy era, I was also slow to appreciate because I was a little bit older when that came on, but not old enough to appreciate the nuance. Yeah. So for me, the first 21 seasons, excluding Twin Dilemma, are the golden age, the first five Doctors. But I think for the Pertwee era during the pilgrimage is probably the most fun that I had yeah. watching the show because the Pertwee year is just five sustained years of excellence. There's a couple of episodes that are not as great. There's some dips in quality, but for the most part, it's just Barry Letts and Terrence Dix making magic yeah. for five straight years. And the target books, think about it. The target books open when the Pertwee year is still in production. So when the first targets come out in January, 1974, Terrence Dix is still writing for the show. You know, he's in the office rewriting Monster of Peladon by day. He's going home by night, and he's writing, you know, the Auton Invasion. Malcolm Hulk goes from uh, writing Dinosaur Invasion to writing Doomsday Weapon and 
the Sea Devils. Barry Letts then goes and writes The Demons, presumably at the exact same time that he's producing Planet of the Spiders and Robot, which are being filmed simultaneously with some of the same cast. The Target books caught the public imagination because they really came in at the end of the Pertwee era. And then, of course, they were lucky enough to have their heyday when Tom Baker was on TV and everyone loves Doctor Who. And City of Death is getting 17 million uh, viewers a week. So we are almost now talking about the 1974 books and the golden age of Target. And that golden age is going to continue. But the books are about to get a lot shorter and a lot more cursory. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, going back to what you said, you know, your favorite Doctor Changes day to day and I think you know that's the magic of Doctor Who for me the magic is that you know you get different teams coming in every couple of years you know you have you know that that run of sort of Barry Lett and Terence Sticks followed by you know Hinchcliffe and Bob Holmes is fantastic you know so different yet so unmistakably Doctor Who what they've produced um, and I think the Let's and Dicks run is works because you've got two people working in very good harmony who know exactly what they want to produce and what they want to de- deliver and, and go out and, and deliver it to a very high standard as well. And they've got a leading man who buys into that as well. And they've got a, a leading lady or two or three that buy into that as well. And it just, it is, it's like you said, it's, it's magic, but that's the magic of Doctor Who. You can look point at any point. You can point at sort of Verity Lambert. You can point at, you know, Cartmel. You can point at um, Graham Williams. And you can pick these bits of magic out of everywhere. And they're all different. All Doctor Who. It's all something um, unique. It's a broad church. We can all just bask in and in adore. A broad church. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep making that there. pun every time. <laughs> Ugh. Graham Williams is almost like the Joe Grant of producers, though, because he comes in, he has a terrible first year. Some of those stories barely get finished. Uh, when you're watching the show in sequence, Invisible Enemy is like, what's happened to my show? It's been, It's gone from being produced by the best of the best to being produced by amateurs. But by the end of the Graham Williams era, season 17 is such a high note. Every single episode in season 17 is almost, you know, lyrical. Um, and what I think is the weakest episode of season 17, which is Nightmare of Eden, for many others, it's their favorite of the whole yeah. year. So season and now that the Blu-ray has come out, or at least it's come out for you, it's on its way to the States. Season 17 is Williams's masterpiece, the same way that in season 10, Joe Grant has never been better and gets to go yeah. out on a high note. Yeah, absolutely. So... What are some of your favorite novelizations? We've talked a lot about The Sea Devils today and how it differs from the TV version. We've talked about how you discovered it, what it means to you. What are some of your other favorites? Um, like I say, I don't have that many to to actually pick from. Um, I think The Sea Devils really works for us. I enjoyed um, The Ambassadors of Death when I read that because, it, again, you know, it's a seven-part story, but it's it's it gets condensed down i was quite interested to read the space museum Um, that was one there it was glenn jones that wrote that and when you listen to the um the the commentary on the space museum dvd he is very critical of 
it um, Dennis Spooner, the script editor? Yes. Yeah. So he is very critical of Dennis Spooner saying, well, uh, that was an, in- that's not how I wrote that. That's not how I wrote that. That's completely different. And that was much funnier and this, that, and the other. And so uh, one of the reasons I bought that book was to go back and see, you know, has he put it right? He's wrote the novelization of his own story, which he's, says has been butchered essentially has he put it right spoilers no yes i love the space museum on tv and on the dvd rob Sherman does like this 15 minute yes. defense of the space museum and he has this great line there's only three problems with the space museum part three <laughs> uh, part two part three and part four <laughs> because part one is so good but if you know where the jokes are, parts two, yeah. three, and four are very funny. And the sequence where Hartnell is being interrogated by the governor, yeah. just more laugh out loud funny than yeah. Doctor Who would be again for a very long time. I think the Space Museum is misunderstood and it's undersold. And the book, you're right, does not capture the magic of what are the TV episodes for me, for sure. And of course, the cliffhanger is so well produced and directed uh, in part one of the Space Museum. No book is ever going to match that. No. No, I mean, I, I think parts two, three, and four are probably better than part one, but I'm always contrary like that. I think, you know, part one gets kind of lost a little bit in, in timey-wiminess and treads a bit of water, whereas parts two, three, and four is where the humour comes from and where the where the excitement is. But... And how great is Vicky, especially when yes. she's leading the computer to revolution? <laughs> Absolutely. Vicky the revolutionary. You've got Ian being essentially John McLean. Um, you know, throwing people left, right and centre. You've got the Doctor just, you know, playing mind games and running rings around everybody. And and, and, and Barbara's got a nice sweater. Yeah, the, that's where the Doctor is hiding inside of the Dalek and starts impersonating yes. one. Yeah, And then you have the Chase, which has... But it's possibly the best line in the entire 26-year run of the classic series. We're trying to defeat the Daleks, not start a jumble sale. <laughs> that line is always running through my head. And what was great about Eve of the Daleks, which is only four days in the past as you and I talk about this, that was the first episode to make the Daleks funny again. Yeah. Because the Daleks were you know, great comedy villains yeah. um, during the Dennis Spooner era between the chase and between the back half, or I should say the middle half of... Daleks master plan, even if the Daleks manages to recapture the fun of the Daleks and not just the horror yeah. element, which everyone else was going for. That the sort of scene with um with Dan in the Dalek where he's he's tapping it on his on the eye stalk and demanding to see its manager. That was that was brilliant. That was. And of course the line Daleks do not store stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, Fraser, thank you so much for joining me this week. This was a lot of fun. It was. Thank um, you very much for having me. And your copy of The Sea Devils definitely needs some TLC. Oh, it's it's in good working order. It's in good working order. I'm going to read a little bit more out for you. Oh, yes, definitely. Please do. I'm going to read, because this is, this is the one passage that I really kind of wanted to highlight, um, which is coming from page 130. It's the end. Um sort of like it's episode six so um it's where the doctor has used the machine he's going to revive the the sea devils with to incapacitate them joe's sprung the sailors out and the doctor is playing all dumb about it um the doctor examined his arrangement of the electrical circuits Hmm, he pondered 
Too much inflow of the neutrons. We'll have to fix that. It was fixed, said the master. Do you realise you must have temporarily knocked out every sea devil in the base? How terribly thoughtless of me, said the doctor. He turned and smiled at the chief sea devil. You will, I hope, forgive me. We never forgive, said the chief sea devil, levelling his raygun at the doctor. We are the rulers of this planet. It was ours millions of years before you apes developed and took it over from us. We shall destroy all mankind and all mammals. Only the reptiles shall survive. The chief sea devil sentence ended there because a bullet from a .44 service rifle, travelling at three times the speed of sound and fired by one petty officer Myers, had just entered and destroyed its brain. The chief sea devil fell backwards, dead before its huge body hit the floor. This is a children's book, my Yes! <laughs> yes! Literally on the back of my reprint, it says, children's fiction. Yes. Now, if you can find me a more graphic death scene in any novel than that, I would love to read it, because that was just... Written with such graphical detail, describing yeah. the speed of the bullet and the caliber of the... You can tell that Malcolm Hulk had some service experience yeah. there. It's just so clinical yeah. and in you going. Your reading is so good, Fraser, that I think Nick Briggs is looking <laughs> over his shoulder. I think you're coming for his job. <laughs> well, if you're listening to this, Nick Briggs, I am available. You know, I've got my microphone now. So, so on a scale of one to Malcolm Clark's kazoo how much are you looking forward to legend of the sea devils Malcolm Clark's kazoo absolutely i think um like i say this the it wasn't at all what i was expecting i was completely shocked i thought the next special was going to be contemporary earth based i thought it was going to be around unit possibly i was fully expecting to have um what's the fella jack robson robertson no Jack yeah. Robinson, yeah, but Jack Robertson, but that's played by Chris Noth, whose yes. career has hit a stumbling block in the last couple of weeks. In the last couple of weeks, coming out. yes. However, all of this was filmed some time ago, so I was expecting uh, Chris Chibnall to finish off the trilogy of um, Chris Noth's character. So to have what we're getting is a historical of pirates and sea devils. It's just exciting, isn't it? And I don't know what to expect now, but I'm really, really excited to see what we're going to get. We'll find out in a few months. Fraser, thank you very much again for joining us. Hope to have you back again very soon. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Hip, hip, hooray. Hooray! The save the day. Special thanks to my special guest, Fraser Gregory, for joining me this week on Episode 9, Doctor Who and the Sea Devils. We talked a little bit about the physical appearance of my copy of The Sea Devils uh, during the interview with Fraser. Uh, There's not a whole lot to discuss about my copy. It's in remarkably good shape, considering that it's about 35 years old. It's got a couple of uh, dents on the front cover, but the corners are in good shape, and there's no watermarks. I tended to take pretty aggressively good care of my books when I was a kid, and the Sea Devils has spent probably most of the last uh, 20 years in a plastic container not seeing daylight. So the condition that it was in uh, when I was a kid is still pretty much the condition it's in today. I had a little bit of trouble with uh, marking off the cliffhangers, primarily because Hulk does have this habit of burying his cliffhangers in mid-sentence or mid-paragraph. 
the cliffhanger to episode one occurs on page 47 of this book, and it comes literally in the middle of a paragraph. The first sentence of the paragraph is, the dragging footsteps came closer, and that's the cliffhanger. I then had to draw an arrow to the side of the page where I wrote episode two vertically in pencil, which I do not recommend. Later on in the book, I realized the error of my ways. So by the time you get to the episode five cliffhanger on page 126, uh, where the cliffhanger occurs in between two paragraphs, I again drew a line in ink and wrote episode six on the left-hand side of the page once again vertically. Episode four is one of those rare episodes where the cliffhanger actually occurs at the end of a chapter, end of chapter 10, so I had a lot more space to write episode five in the more traditional horizontal way there on page 116. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found on Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. And you can also find me on select episodes of the Trap One podcast, where I share hosting duties with a panel of other fine podcasters. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time, we'll be discussing Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowmen from November 1974. And again, joined by a very special guest, this time a Doctor Who novelist. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.